to Matthew chapter 2. And uh, it's one of the uh, passages we read briefly at, um, at Christmas time. And uh, a bit about you, I don't know when the Christmas uh, decorations came down. Still up, my love, but not on. It's uh, a job for later on. Uh, I know someone was like, oh, down on the 27th. Uh, it is. But it's, it's one of those stories, the, the Magi, the wise men from the East, and um, we read that uh, very often, of Magi coming bringing their gifts, but we, we stop at, um, usually at verse 12, uh, because it takes a little of a deep turn. But given that it was in the liturgical calendar of this epiphany this week, I thought we'd um, read the chapter and uh, have a little bit of info. Is that okay? Answers no mean I still carry on. <laughs> After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and had come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are the, by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the major secretly and found out from them, the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead and until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another gift. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the major, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity. We were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the nature. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted. Because there no more. 
terrified. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling in, reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said to the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. If you Received a book at Christmas, novel, something like that. I wonder if you opened it yet. The first few lines can make a book or can make you close the book. It's one of those things. They tell us in sermon class if you've not got somebody in the first two sentences of the sermon, it's unlikely you get them back. I hope I'm doing all right. <laughs> it's one of those things. I remember at school, reading and being having to study these first lines as part of the whole book. Uh, can you guess? Library over here has to pause for a moment. Uh, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Library has to pause for a minute. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Teotisities. Charles Dickens. As I was preparing for this, it kind of came back to mind, and I thought, actually, that phrase, that introduction, fits really, really well with the gospel, with this particular chapter. I'm entitled this sermon, One Story, Two Dynasties, Three Attitudes. One, two, three. One story, two dynasties, three attitudes. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's one story, even though it's particular, with Mary and Joseph and baby it's one story, even though we know the characters and the place. Herod, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. It's one story because it's all about Jesus, God with us. All of us. Humanity, creation, the world. One story. And so often it's true in the in the, the scriptures, right from uh, the beginning of Genesis, the particular avenue that God is working through and develops, the, the particular stories we learn about seem to be, well, what's it got to do with us about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And what about uh, the Tower of Babel? And what about uh, Noah? And what about um, Samuel and King David? What about or how does that apply so long, so much later? And yet it is one story. Because in God's wonderful way, His process and His purposes are worked out through the story of people. One.
seen in promising this dynasty, this one story, the coming of the Messiah, rooted right into the central promises of God. In chapter 2, it's there because again and again we hear that this prophecy is fulfilled. The purposes of God have been explained and spoken of and heralded and announced to the people of God that there is a coming one. That the Messiah is coming, this hope for, this long for, this new king, this king which will eclipse even King David, a new dynasty to be heralded. Grounded, obviously, in the covenant. We see it in this genealogy in chapter 1. We haven't read, but, but obviously speaks particularly of Abraham, the covenant to Abraham. Picks up with David and the covenant that was made to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then through the dark times of exile. That into the darkness, light comes. Into the darkness and the brooding violence that Herod encapsulates, signifies his deception in the story. I want to worship Jesus. Tell me where he is. Find him so I may come. And worship with a heart of death. The lies that he spoke. I'm glad that God revealed it to the wise men and they were wise and listened to God and detoured. And the extent of darkness is always revealed. It is uncovered. Unmasked. Tells us of the angel's warning to Joseph in a dream. A lot was at stake then and now. The human rights policy of Herod's administration is really clear. Herod claims all the rights to do with human beings, whatever will keep him in power. And the outcome of that power is a voice shall be heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. It's one story. A voice should be heard in Poland or South Africa or Central America or Northern Ireland or Syria or name your place. Wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. One story. Matthew tells us that it's when Herod sits on the throne that the child is born who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Not into a fairy tale land of once upon a time in a land far away, but into the world of tears and terrorism and tyrants and tragedy. A child is born and the angels declare, God with us. I was listening to a, a podcast, as I do, really interesting one. It's uh, on Newscast, it's BBC Sounds, I know it's a plug, and it, it caught my attention uh, as I was kind of looking back at what I might catch up on it, and it's entitled Disappointing the Archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and uh, it's really interesting, and he's very wise, but there's one very poignant bit where Laura Koonsberg and um, the other two people interviewing the Archbishop just before Christmas, kind of mid-December, 
were asking him about the pandemic and they were asking about rule breaking and, and he wouldn't be drawn to criticise by name. But did say it was disappointing, hence disappointment, disappointing the Archbishop. But they asked him, they said, you were a chaplain in uh, the hospital very near Lambeth Palace. You volunteered as a chaplain in the midst of COVID. And he recounts in that time some of the darkness that he experienced. He said the NHS staff and uh, and the, the chaplains were just amazing. And he said it was such a privilege to be there because he was allowed, along with the, uh, the, the doctors and nurses and, and clinicians and, and the chaplains, to be the only ones alongside the sick and the desperate in the dark. Not even family were allowed. I'm sure you remember those days. A fear of death. And he said that he was amazed at the opportunity. He said there was, there was one lady who was, couldn't speak. She was on a ventilator, but she was conscious. And she'd asked that someone would come and pray. And behind his gear, she didn't, he didn't know whether he, she knew he was the archbishop or not, but knew that he was a person of faith. And he said, as I prayed for her, and they, they asked, what did you pray? And how do you minister in that context? And what, 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 ca- what hope can you bring when it seems hopeless? And this may be the last few moments of someone's life. And he said, I stood at the end of the bed and we locked eyes. And I prayed. And commended, committed her to the Lord. And cried out. Cried out that this is wrong. Not, uh, he quotes Postman Pat to the astonishment of Laura Koonsberg, of Vicar Timms, I think it is, Father Timms, who when a tragedy comes said, oh, bless you, my child. It's all will work for good. And he said that, that and they made a joke and said, there's no bishop coming, no kind of appointment for Father Timms or Postman Pat. But uh, the point he was making was that, that actually in those moments, it's right to cry out for justice. It's right to stand against oppression and recognize in these dynasties that are around us, in this one story, that not everything is right. And he said there was another lady he prayed for. She was a Muslim. And her family said, we don't really mind who prays for her. We just want someone of faith to be alongside her. And as he said, as he knelt by the bed and prayed for this Muslim lady, he said to the interviewers, I'm sorry if this gets all mystic for you, but he said there was such a profound presence of the Lord there. It was a holy moment as the love of God entered into that desperate place. One story, our story, into the two dynasties writ large for us here that we know and live in. The struggle, the apprehension, the fear. What next? Emmanuel. God with us. One, two, three attitudes. Remarkably, two are reasonable, one unreasonable. The three attitudes, the Magi and Herod and the religious, the chief priests. Firstly, I guess, let's, let's think about the unreasonable. 
It's weird to say that the religious and the, the people who would be looked to for guidance and wisdom and indeed spoke the truth when the major came, where? And King Herod summoned them and said, where will this child be born? They got it right. Those in power and authority, the priests and the wise and religious, steeped in scripture, they read it in the temple, they opened the scrolls, they gathered in the synagogues, they held up faith before God and and for God's people. They knew the Old Testament, they knew the messianic hope, they knew chapter and verse and immediately could point, say, aha, yes, you're referring to Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, the prophecy of Micah, they'd have called it. He'll be born in Bethlehem. Absolutely sure of that. Because they knew of the Messiah. They knew of the Christ in their worship and in the longing of their hearts and in the singing in their meetings. Lord, restore Israel. Yet the strange thing is about them is no matter how much they praise God for the works done in the past and they We're expectant about the promises of God in the future. He will come. The challenge came to them in the present, the now, this moment. And when those wise men entered in, they spoke the truth, but they weren't willing to acknowledge or respond to the work of God in the now. Astonishing. For them, I guess, the scriptures were a bit like an old museum. It was ordered and safe and they could find it and look at it and know it. They studied it and held it as precious. And maybe the future they longed for and hoped for and maybe just seemed a dream, a hope. But the kingdom of God comes in the now, in the present. And it disturbs and it demands. The kingdom of God disturbs and demands. They watched the wise men leave Jerusalem and they didn't walk the six miles with them to Bethlehem. What an attitude. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking, gosh, am I there too? Someone who loves the scriptures, who will read them and read books about them and likes to get asked questions about it and long for that day, but where is my now response to come and worship and bring my all again, to come And be disturbed and hear the demand of the Lord, come meet with me, come follow. The challenge for the religious and the faithful is to keep not living just in the past. Of course, the past is important to remember and it roots us and the future is our destiny and where we're called and it's hopeful and great. The attitude of now, of epiphany. Do you remember what that word means? 
has two meanings. A manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, obviously this story. But a moment too of sudden and great revelation or realization. Epiphany. God is with us. He is Lord. Am I continuing to make that journey with him? For Herod, the second of the attitudes, it's a reasonable one, I guess. He's the ruler. He's in power. His authority is being challenged. He is sitting on the throne. He is, he is uh, threatened, absolutely threatened by this news. He is wise to discern that this Jesus will rock the boat. That his power and all that is based upon the dynasty of darkness will crumble. It shall not stand, for light has come. And as is the way of all darkness, it will seek to destroy and rubbish and stamp out good. It will seek to do that still. Not just in this story, but while ever we wait until Christ returns, this we will see. Philip has kindly, uh, over many years, helped us through the open doors. That's our sisters and brothers' experience with dictators and despots and local rulers and unruly neighbors and challenging parents who will seek to diminish the light and degrade it and stand against it. There really is one story that we're part of, writ large in this story. And the power of darkness is deeply challenging. Again, a big word if you like them. If not, let them wash over you. This story raises some deep challenges for us. It's the word theodicy, the reign and rule of God. He saved Jesus. Hallelujah. He rescued the rescuer. Sent a dream, sent angels. They fled as refugees. And, uh, and we know uh, the story of refugees again and again. And yet, how many boys were massacred? How much blood was shed? How much grief from the mothers? Those perennial questions. Where is God in the darkness? Why hasn't God rescued me when we hear the story of rescuing of others? Where is he? Has he abandoned us? The third attitude is that of the wise Men, the Magi, travelers from the east, who knows not how far, probably at least as far as Iraq, modern-day Iraq and Persia, maybe further. And they have a radical response. Herod does. He had a radical response. It was brutal. But the Magi 
Their response, their reaction is entirely proportionate to the momentous news that God had come. As a baby, God has come. These astrologers from at least Persia, these diviners of the stars, who'd been part of that people who had enslaved God's own people in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, they had stood against God's purposes. They were the natural enemies and the legacy of the natural enemies of this Jewish Messiah. But remember, even into that nation, even into that dark place, God had sown a seed. Daniel and his friends, they got caught up. They were wise men of the east. They were in the court of, 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 of the Babylonians and of, of Persian. In fact, Daniel rose to the top because God gave him supernatural wisdom to understand the signs and the stars and the dreams and to show that God is even amongst them. And maybe, just maybe, the wise men understood that God had prophesied that Daniel himself, in the letter of Daniel, had prophesied the coming of a Messiah. It's like the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Maybe they, they had recorded in their histories and they were studious and they recognized that, that in this people Israel was a pearl of great price. And when that star appeared, they didn't just know about the past, but their present got shifted. They went on this journey. It took them about two years to meet Jesus. I love it in verse 11. It's really interesting, just a tiny detail. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They saw Jesus first. God spoke to them in a language they could understand. And they shifted. They saw Jesus. They brought their gifts. Gold for a king. Frankincense. Because they were worshipping one whom was God. And myrrh. Because this one was born to be a martyr. We see that in, the, in Exodus when God commanded frankincense to be part of their worship and, and process in the holy place. And in John 19, we read, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. And they worshipped. In this one story, that encapsulates us all. In these two dynasties that are reflected of, of saying there is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of death. There are three responses. Three attitudes. Hostile and vehement opposition. I pray to God we're not part of that. But its influence affects us. The scriptures help us in these challenging times when it doesn't go well, when darkness prevails. Jeremiah, in his confessions, his, in, the first, in chapters 10 to 20, has some deeply troubling phrases. I wish I had never been born. Cursed be the day that my mother bore me. 
is a man of God speaking. Weeping in Ramah, great mourning. Lamentation. That pain that is uttered in faith before God that stands against darkness and said, this is not right. God, help. God set this right. We call to you because there is nobody else. The religious and the people of faith, but in the moment and in their day-to-day living, that presence, that hunger, that desire to be with Jesus wherever he is, to move wherever he asks us to, to call us to bring whatever he would ask as an offering in worship, we step back and stand aside and say, not right now. I know which one I hope to be. I hope I know which one you choose too. C.S. Lewis in his book, God on the Dock, says, Christianity is a statement which if false is of no importance and if true is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. One story, two kingdoms, three attitudes. You see, the Magi let the coming of the Messiah disturb their diaries, transform their thinking, and demanded their worship. They left everything responding to King Jesus. Let's pray.